Donald Fagan of Steely Dan fame, singing the title tune of his album, The Nightfly, inspired, he tells us, by an idol of his from his teen years. We meet Louis the Nightfly, a late-night radio host, taking calls from loony listeners far and wide. On Christmas Eve 2015, Slate.com shared an essay by Donald Fagan about the late, great Gene Shepard, now and always, no doubt, to be associated with the December holidays. Fagan writes, If you know Gene Shepard's name, it's probably in connection with the now-classic film A Christmas Story, which is based on a couple of stories in his book In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. He also does the compelling voiceover narration. On Christmas, TBS has had a tradition of presenting a 24-hour Christmas story marathon. There are annual fan conventions devoted to the film, and the original location in Cleveland has been turned into a museum. But long before A Christmas Story was made, Shepard did a nightly radio broadcast on WOR out of Manhattan that enthralled a generation of alienated young people within the range of the station's powerful transmitter. I was introduced to Shep, as his fans called him, by my weird Uncle Dave. Dave, who was a bit of a hipster, used to crash on our sofa when he was between jobs. Being a bookish and somewhat imperious 12-year-old, already desperately weary of life in suburban New Jersey, and appalled by Hoss and Little Joe and Mitch Miller and the heinous bachelor father, I figured Dave was my man. One night, after ruthlessly beating me at rummy, he put down the cards and said, Now we're going to listen to Shepard. This guy's great. The Zenith table model in the kitchen came to life midway through Shepard's theme music, a kitschy, galloping Edward Strauss piece called the Bonfrey Polka. And then there was that voice, cozy yet abounding with jest. He was definitely a grown-up, but he was talking to me. I mean, straight to me, with my 12-year-old sensibility, as if some version of myself with 25 more years' worth of life experience had magically crawled into the radio, sat down, and loosened his tie. I was hooked. From then on, like legions of other sorry misfits throughout the Northeast, I tuned in every weeknight at 11.15 and let Shep put me under his spell. But once there was a time. Listening to Shep, I learned about social observation and human types, how to parse modern rituals like dating and sports, the omnipresence of hierarchy, joy in struggle, 19th century panoramic painting, Nelson Algren, Brecht, Beckett, the nature of the soul. He told you what to expect from life, loss, and betrayal, and made you feel that you were not alone. Shepard's talk usually fell into one of four categories. Fans of A Christmas Story will be familiar with the basic comic tone of his Depression-era tales, elaborations on his experience growing up in Hammond, Indiana, a Chicago suburb in the shadow of the U.S. Steelworks on Lake Michigan. These stories featured his manic father, the old man, his mother, always standing over the sink in a yellow rump-sprung chenille bathrobe, his kid brother, Randy, 
and assorted pals, bullies, beauties, and other neighborhood types. While the film preserves much of the flavor of Shep's humor, not much remains of the acid edge that characterized his on-air performances. In the film, the general effect is one of bittersweet nostalgia on the radio. The true horror of helpless childhood came through. Donald Fagan of Steely Dan fame, remembering Gene Shepard, humorous storyteller, inductee of the National Radio Hall of Fame, forever to be known for A Christmas Story, the movie, the musical, and the collection of tales in book form. The Little Theatre of Wilkes-Barre invites us to wander around in the memory and imaginative spaces of the mind of Gene Shepard as they present the musical A Christmas Story, directed by Kim Rose, opening this Friday, December 9th, and running through December 18th. David Parmalee, general manager of the Little Theatre of Wilkes-Barre, and actor Kelly Krieger, who plays the old man, stopped in at the WVIA studios to talk with us about the wit and wisdom, may we say wackiness, of Gene Shepard and his holiday tales. David Parmalee. I have always been a fan of storytellers and authors who act as storytellers. When I was a kid, one of the first things I did in theater was I did an evening of Mark Twain Tonight which was the famous presentation made so well-known throughout the world, really, by Hal Holbrook. And what was that for a 16-year-old kid to be doing? But I loved Twain. I had studied him and read him a lot. And to me, he is the American storyteller, right, going back to our roots. Well, Gene Shepard, in my mind, had picked up that mantle in the 20th century in a very different way, but, but still giving us some of that same delightful craftsmanship of telling American stories. So what I love about Gene Shepard, a couple things, I love radio, he's a great radio voice, although known for TV as well, but he, he really was a great figure of Americana. He captured the little things, the everyday part of the fabric of life in the part of the country where he was from with the people that were his people. And he, he brought that out to people doing monologues without notes. He could go on for hours telling those stories. And that's a unique individual. So you gotta love Gene Shepard. He is one of a kind. And isn't it wonderful that he found big success with something? And you'll see that among great people in every field. They sometimes find big success with something that they might not have considered their most important work. Dickens, how many thousands of pages did he craft? And what does everyone know him for? A Christmas Carol, tiny little novella, you know, written in the course of, I think, three weeks or four weeks. Mm -hmm. just tossed it off, but it was just a, a bolt of lightning. And I think when Shepard took the nuggets of story that ended up in A Christmas Story from his books, from his monologues, etc., and he, he didn't do it alone. He had people work with him. But he, he found kind of a wonderful recipe for a stew there mm -hmm. made out of things that he did. And you know, it didn't catch on instantly, but boy, did it catch on later. Yeah. So it, it's marvelous for an author, especially somebody who just did it off the cuff like he did, mm -hmm. to find a way to knit it together that it can survive them. And people say, oh, isn't he the guy who wrote the one about the leg lamp? <laughs> just those little things that to him were, it was what he did. But he put it all together and it worked so well. Mm -hmm. Such a great recipe. 
Let me ask you, David, this is the 100th anniversary season coming to its conclusion. Why this story as opposed to Christmas Carol? Yes. One thing we do every year at Little Theater in the fall is Rocky Horror. We do that around Halloween. And when we began to do Christmas shows, it was actually 2016. We did one for the first one in decades at Little Theater. They used to kind of shut it down for the season and bring it back in the spring. And we said, people love A Christmas Carol. They certainly took to it very well. But we didn't want to have the exact same season from September on Mm -hmm. every year. So we thought, let's do A Christmas Carol for those who love it. Uh, But let's find some other really interesting shows, both musicals and straight shows, uh, that relate strongly to the holiday season. And most importantly, they're for the whole family. So naturally, this would fit the bill very well. Kelly, you'll be the old man. Did you see the movie early on? Yeah. (laughs) My father introduced it to me at a young age. And it's funny, I've been saying a lot with, you know, doing interviews with the newspaper and talking to the cast and stuff. Even at a young age, I've always gravitated more towards the old man (laughs) than I did Ralphie. (laughs) So he's always been a character I've always looked forward to seeing each year around Christmas time and and watching at the, the 24 hours from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day. And I don't know, I, I, he reminds me a lot of nostalgia with, with my, my family and my grandparents, something about him. So it's really exciting to be able to play him and sort of weave myself into, you know, maybe a role that I, I'm a little too young for, but I can, I can weave myself with my experiences with my, my elders through that and, and have some shared experiences with them too. Can you develop a character without people just waiting for the next beat? When are we going to see the leg lamp, for example? That's sort of the trick that I'm I'm finding with myself is that things that the expectation versus yourself. And a good actor, I think, always finds the best recipe. And sometimes the best recipe came from the person who did it before. And so Darren McGavin uh, (laughs) was exceptional in this movie. And I've watched it for years. So there are, you know, some things, some lines that I'll, I'll, you know steal. <laughs> but there are some things that I'm finding Kelly does well too. And so it's it's a nice little, like like David said, a nice stew, a nice mixture of, of things that I'm sort of playing with right now in rehearsals. Kelly is a character actor and we love our character actors. <laughs> I was too. My wife was. Anybody can play Romeo or Juliet. Who can play the really interesting yeah. people, <laughs> especially at a younger age? And he has that marvelous instinct that really I think would be very hard to teach where he can reach for characters very much outside his own expected range and, and play those those fascinating people that we love because they're quirky or we love to hate them, the good bad guys, <laughs> the good good guys. And you know, when you think about it, the dramatic canon, the television canon is full of those grumpy dad figures. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know them. I mean, they're famous, Archie Bunker, right? <laughs> You know, even in cartoon version, we've got Family Guy and Homer Simpson. How big is the leg lamp? (laughs) Actually, David just brought it to me the other day. That's Um, my one role in the show, to make the lamp. I had to actually make the leg lamp. That was it. It's it's pretty big. I don't know the exact size, but it's it's pretty big. I when we were rehearsing with it for the first time, you know, I've been rehearsing with air, so I, I'm holding it. I'm like, this is a lot heavier than the air I've been holding this entire time. I'm trying to navigate that, negotiate it on stage now, but it's as big and and elegant as you would want it to be. That's something I thought of 
when I was working on that leg lamp, I love props. I love making mm. props. You know, I think in most community theaters, there's somebody who goes, ooh, let me do it. Oh, I, sure, I'm going to yeah. make a giant razor for Sweeney Todd. You know, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to make the chair. But there's very few productions I can think of where the props are so well known to the mm. audience and they mm. have to be just right. Yeah. You've got to have the leg lamp, the Red Rider BB gun mm-hmm. with a 200 shot magazine, mm-hmm. compass in the stock and something to tell it on, <laughs> the flagpole, uh, even the hats the kids wear, the bunny suit. Yeah. Very demanding in that respect. And the moments in the show that you want to be there are certainly there, so you have to rise to the occasion with the, with the props and, and, and the costumes and, and, and you think even the blocking of the show in a, in a certain way has to honor what has been done before yes. because yeah. it's expected. Yeah. yeah there, there aren't too many adaptations of a movie that's better known. Set in 1940, <laughs> book written in 1966, film 1983, Musical adaptation, 2012. And I, I was just reading about Pasek and Paul, who created it. They're 37 now. And talk about success. I think what's so different about this score from the other shows that they have done is that it, it feels like somewhat of a golden age musical in, in a lot of areas. Uh, you have big musical numbers. You have big big dance sequences. Uh, a lot of their other works are, are very contemporary, and I, I think this is one of my favorite scores that they have done because, and it was actually my introduction to Pasek and Paul, because I saw the original run on Broadway in 2012, and I think it was really successful how they found a musical language for it that wasn't didn't feel contemporary you know it'd feel wrong if it was a contemporary yeah that's musical. true you really wouldn't do well to give it a contemporary feel because it's so tied to that era but i mean you don't want it to sound like a musical from the 40s so what, mm-hmm. what do you do when you do the adaptation mm-hmm. you, you give a feel or yeah. a vibe that yeah. goes back and how you musicalize iconic moments too like the dream sequences in this are all mostly uh these big musical numbers or moments there's a dance with the leg lamp it's a kick line <laughs> only it kicks once yeah. right but... <laughs> those moments like the oh no black bart like in the in the movie that becomes a whole musical number too with ralphie becoming cowboy ralphie and, and his students being put in these situations in which he has to save them and... yes well the, to me there's a lot in this about growing up as a boy at that time who are you what's your future what can you be confident about what are you learning about yourself as you go along just to get through that very difficult process of being a kid and he's very sympathetic to that for kids that there's so much of their lives they can't control they get bullied they get in fights they get a christmas present they don't want you know the aunt made them a bunny suit oh (laughs) oh just just what i was dreaming of right there's not a lot you could control so there's that aspect of the fantasy life of boys that gets lived out in comic books what's the the magazine that ralphie reads open road and they're talking about adventure and camping and kind of looking back on that era where kids often lived life through adventure novels or comic books Mm -hmm. ralphie yeah, and I also appreciate the end of the show where Gene Shepard, who maybe is or isn't Ralphie when he's older, brings a new meaning to the gift that he received at, at that point from that Christmas. You know, it was just a want at that at that moment, but then as he grew up, he realized the significance of the gift in a new way. And I think that's another reason why I love the dad so much. He, you know, he's this grumpy, grumpy and uh, strict sort of father figure who has these outlandish moments that are really fun. But he quietly makes Christmas happen for Ralphie that year. And I think that's really wonderful. And and how Ralphie appreciates that years later, that the gift was the greatest Christmas gift he would ever receive because it came from his old man. That's one of the last lines in the show. Somebody said, I think Gene Shepard or one of the co-authors 
it was Christmas Carol told by Scrooge. That that was his vision for the story. That the grumpy old guy who really is not part of the season, except for the turkey, which also <laughs> figures prominently in a Christmas Carol. But in the end, the, the grumpy old guy, you know, his heart grows with the spirit of the season, yeah. and he realizes that the best way to show his love for this boy is to give him what he wants, mm-hmm. even though he's going to shoot his eye out. And just like Scrooge at the end, Scrooge saves the day, the founder yeah. of the feast. He becomes the hero, and so does the old man, unexpectedly. Yeah. And, and you know, the old man constantly gets stepped on throughout the musical, too. The, and, the, and the movie, the the leg lamp being broken, his right. one... This one thing that he he was able to get that that I am the winner I I actually did yes. something gets completely destroyed his turkey his prized right, turkey at right. the end the motif throughout the show and the movie these these dogs that just won't leave him alone whenever right. he comes home from work or steps outside for that matter they get his one thing that he was looking for for Christmas Day well here here we are what eleven years after Black Friday the depression yeah yeah mm-hmm. Still in the Depression. I mean, mm-hmm. many people would say World War II got us out of it eventually. Mm-hmm. But it took that event, took till the 50s truly to recover. So you've got a family living with very modest means. Yep. You know, they have one outlet <laughs> into which they plug everything, which is how houses work. Uh, he's got a furnace that he has to constantly monitor yep. to keep it from blowing up. Uh, it doesn't replace the furnace. Nope. Again, not, not a lot of money there. I don't think we ever hear what he does for a living. No, we don't. And Shepard's father was some kind of a cashier at a dairy, very mm-hmm. modest means. And you could see that in the mm-hmm. events of the film and the musical as well. Clearly, there's not a lot of room here financially. Nope. So when Ralphie breaks his glasses, that's a big deal. What are they going to do? They're going to kill me. I broke my glasses. Uh, so they're, they're just making life work and making those moments good as a family uh, without a lot of resources. You hear that story again and again in the United States mm-hmm. from that time period. I think, too, uh, to that end, I think that's why these these characters sort of remind me of people like my grandparents. You know, they, they never really had much, and Christmas was always magical, being with them and, and being at their house on Christmas Eve. And they always made you feel so special and without really having to try. And I think that's why the old man, he quietly does it. He quietly orchestrates this for Ralphie, and I think that's one of the most special qualities yes to me for him you're speaking about nostalgia and the 1940s what does this piece a christmas story have to say to us in 2022 it, it's so trite to say christmas has been over commercialized and people have forgotten the spirit of the holiday yada 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 we know what comes next you can say it all you want but it's true uh the the focus has changed somewhat we always had christmas presents my gosh christmas morning i was like a kid on christmas morning that was the thing we looked forward to the most about christmas but however you celebrate the holidays i think that the family aspect of it the ceremonial aspect where we do certain things together we always do certain things Uh, my aunt would drive up from maryland she she passed away just before covid in her 80s and she would bring the christmas crackers that are so popular in england well, in our junk drawer, we have the little toys and the stuff and the, the, the confetti that came out of the Christmas cracker. <laughs> I think we still have a box of them on the shelf that we didn't use up one year. So it, it's those things you do together, those things you remember if you're fortunate enough to be close to your family. And some of those things were religious things. We all went to church. We went to mass wherever we went. Uh, and some of those things were family things. Some of those things might be going to the theater together, which we're always delighted 
we see the grandparents with the little kids in their you know itchy Christmas sweater that they don't <laughs> want to be wearing. But oh, it's a special occasion. This isn't a movie. They're they're live up there. So we hope that we give people, uh, if it's just two hours, I mean, a chance to relax and forget about some of the modern pressures that have come with our very very fortunate. Uh, affluence, you know, where where Christmas has become perhaps a bigger commercial thing, to to take focus away from that, stop worrying about that, and give them something they can appreciate together, uh, and and kind of maybe get back a little bit to what it meant for the Parkers in mm-hmm. 1940. David Parmalee, general manager of the Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre, who constructed the leg lamp and actor Kelly Krieger, who plays the old man in the little theater production of A Christmas Story, the stage musical version of the 1983 film of that name, A Christmas Story. The musical takes place in the 1940s in Indiana and focuses on a child named Ralphie. It's directed by Kim Rose. The music director is Joanna Bryn Smith. And the show dates are December 9th, through the 18th, Fridays and Saturdays at 8 p.m., Sundays at 3. So the show opens on the 9th, Friday, and runs through Sunday, December 18th. Shows Fridays and Saturdays at 8 p.m., Sundays at 3 p.m., and the Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre is on North Main Street in Wilkes-Barre, and if you need more information, ltwb.org ltwb.org A Christmas Story to be presented by the Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre as the culmination of the 100th anniversary season for one of the longest running community theaters in the country and it's the stage musical version of A Christmas Story and you can see it Friday, December 9th through Sunday the 18th Fridays and Saturdays at 8pm, Sundays at 3 for more information, ltwb.org 